Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Where They At. This is the 18th edition. My name is Nabate Owls. It's always a pleasure to interview iconic sports figures, uh, people that really paved the way for what sports is today. And uh, this episode, it's, it's a true honor. He's one of my favorite leaders. What he has done in his incredible career uh, has, been, has been paramount. And this man actually was an Olympic a uh, gold medalist in 1964 with the men's basketball team that was in Tokyo, which the next Olympics will be. He was a three-time ABA All-Star and also coached in the ABA as well, leading uh, Carolina and Denver to the playoffs. And he's the only coach in NBA history to lead eight different teams to the playoffs. That shows that he's able to adapt to the personnel he has and he's able to lead them to one common goal of playing for a championship. He is the only coach in basketball history to win an NCAA title and an NBA title, the only coach ever. And he was inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame in 2002. Not just a prolific coach, but a prolific teacher. I present Mr. Larry Brown on Where They At. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for all those kind words. Appreciate oh, that. Yes, sir. It's my it's my pleasure. I mean, you 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 the one that accomplished so many great things and and led so many uh, players to be their best selves. And wow, there's a lot to talk about, sir. And I wanted to to ask you, you know, where you're at right now. What are you up to, and everything? Um, you know, since you've been retired for for a couple of years. Well, I'm bored to death. That's for sure. Um, I'm lucky enough to be in Charlotte, um, close to my grandkids. Um, I ride a bike inside and I walk and see them from a distance. Uh, I'm just, uh, amazed what everybody's going through. And my, my immediate family is in New York, um, kind of quarantined out on the Hamptons and, you know, I haven't been able to travel. They were my doctors won't let me travel for a while, but uh, I'm watching old basketball games. Uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff like we're doing, and I'm learning a lot. And I feel like uh, I'm blessed just to be able to talk to you and share wow. what I've been taught. Well, thank you. And it's an honor to 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 gain that insight and wisdom from you, sir. Absolutely. And I'm glad, glad that you're healthy, glad your family is healthy and hope that you can see them soon, for sure. Thank you. Um, thank def- you. Definitely, sir. And uh, yeah, one, wow, there's so much, so much to, to delve into, but you grew up, you were born in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker myself. I was born in Manhattan, raised in Queens. Your father, uh, Milton, and your mom, Anne, Anne lived to 106 years old. That's, that's just amazing. But your father, Milton, he died, passed away when you were seven years old. I was six, so my, my brother was 10. Wow. And, 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 and coach, talk about, like, you didn't know about his death until weeks later. How did that impact you throughout your childhood and eventually into your adulthood? Well, um, my dad was a traveling salesman and, uh, we lived in Brooklyn and he traveled Western Pennsylvania and he used to leave, um, either Sunday night or early Monday morning and come back Friday night or Saturday morning. So I was used to him being away. Um, He suffered a heart attack um, because he 
my mom thought he was overworked and traveling so much. So we decided it was best to move to Pittsburgh, where his territory was predominantly. And uh, and he had another heart attack, passed away after months in Pittsburgh. So we moved back to Brooklyn. My grandfather had a bakery there and uh, eventually moved to Long Beach, Long Island, where he had a bakery. And my mom and most of the family worked in the bakery. Uh, and we actually lived on top of the bakery, uh, across from a playground. I've been so lucky. Uh, you know, my older brother took care of me. My mom had two brothers that took care of me. Um, I had the greatest opportunity to play for the greatest coaches, starting with my high school coach. Um, Bobby Gersten, and then I went to Carolina. Um, Frank McGuire, McGuire recruited my mom, mm -hmm. and she told me to go there. And then Coach Smith came to Carolina, and then I got to work for him, played for him, and then he brought me back to coach with him. And then I played for John McClendon. I played for mm -hmm. Alex Hannum. I played for Pete Newell. You know, I coached with some amazing assistants. Have all become head coaches yes, and coached some amazing – Coach from amazing players that, you know, at the end of the day, players teach you. Um, your assistants, you know, contribute to you and are not afraid to help you. Now, you know, you see the NBA, they have 15 coaches and five video guys and four <laughs> analytic guys. I, I started out with Doug Moe and myself trying to learn how to coach. Yeah, Carolina Cougars. So, and I let my assistants share their knowledge with me while the game was going on. Now I see everybody standing up and wondering how they're getting input from the guys that they value. So it's yeah. it's changed, but I was lucky. Wow. Um, I wanted to be a high school coach and coach baseball, basketball, and football and teach American history. And because the people came into my life, I ended up doing what I did. Wow. When you were growing up in Brooklyn, you have taught and coached with toughness, competitiveness, and also you've been around all different types of people growing up in Brooklyn, you know, in the 50s, like all different types of people around you. So how did that really help you be able to gravitate towards basketball and build your philosophy that you lived on? Well, you know, in Brooklyn, you played in the street whether it was stickball, punchball, baseball, basketball, football, depended on the city, the season. Um, um, my, my cousin taught at the Bronzeville Boys Club in Bed-Stuy. Bed so every weekend I would go out there and, and play against guys that were much better than me. You know, uh, being in Long, after I moved from Brooklyn to Long Island, you know, we, we didn't have a diverse community. There weren't a lot of, you know, kids of color going to my high school. But every weekend, I go to Brooklyn and play against kids of color uh, that were less fortunate than me that used to kick my ass. Uh, and, I, I mean, it was so competitive, and I was playing against people that, you know, were so good and so talented. And, you know, they kind of embraced me because my cousin ran the boys' club. And then my older brother, um, you know, he he played. He had friends. 
So I was always playing against older people. And then when I moved to Long Beach, the bakery was across the street from a famous playground. And from April through the end of October, all great players from every area of New York used to come out and older people that you respect and are patient with you, it allows you to grow. Um, and they were a positive influence on me, um, taught me the right way to play. Um, if I didn't do it the right way, they weren't afraid to hold me accountable. Wow. That's, and then the last thing, I used to read Chip Hilton books um, okay. written, by, written by Claire B., and they were stories about a great athlete who lost his dad early, had a great, great coach. He coached baseball, basketball, and football. And that's who I wanted to be like. You know, I wanted to be a high school coach and coach all three sports and teach American history. And from accident, you know, I got to be a college and pro coach. Wow. Talking with Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, the great Larry Brown on where they at the 18th edition and coach Brown, uh, your brother, Herb Brown, who's also a coach as well. He was a coach for the Detroit Pistons in the late seventies and he played at the university of Vermont. How did you two push each other to be the best you can be? <laughs> I didn't push him. <laughs> he pushed me up, you know, but I got to play with his friends that were older um, and real good players. We played for the same high school coach. Eventually we used to go away because my mom worked, um, we got to go away in the summertime to camp uh, um, and spend time together. And, you know, I had a great experience there getting out of, out of the city, getting out of Long Island. You know, everybody used to come to Long Beach in the summertime. And my mom worked so long, she thought it'd be better if we got away. So I was lucky in that respect. But, um, you know, when you play against older people, that respect the game and challenge you every day uh, and are not afraid to tell you the right thing to do, um, it helps you grow. I think a lot of kids really want to be taught, but a lot of, afraid of, of people are afraid to teach them, afraid to hold them accountable. And a lot of times when they leave the gym with great intentions, somebody else gets into their head and you know, it has some negative things to say about how you're being used or how you're being taught. Yep. Or, and and you, you get a bad mis-message. And, and my thing, you know, I didn't always treat guys the way they should. There's some people that I've coached in my life that I wish I had the opportunity to do it again because I could have done a better job with them. But for the most part, I try to do the right thing. Um, and I found out, you know, the more you show these kids that you care, the more that they allow to trust you and allow to, you to coach them. That's right. And I don't think we, I don't think we see that enough. We enable kids now instead of challenging them to do their best and yes. uh, earn the right to play, earn the minutes they get, respect the game because they all really want to do the right thing. It's just sometimes they're not fortunate enough to get people that will challenge them and show them the right way. No, that's deep. And I'm, I'm a teacher myself, you know, um, too. And, and, and that's what it is. You have to 
just push those principles to them over and over and over, outwill them, kind of, you know, and, and, that's, and that shows that you care when you keep pushing those principles for sure, sir. Wow, and, and, and joining University of North Carolina, I mean, Frank McGuire, who's a New Yorker, so he brought a lot of, a lot of New Yorkers down, yourself and Charlie Scott, uh, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the 60s. It was a great program before I got there in 57, they beat Michigan State in triple overtime with Jumpy Johnny Green to mm. go to the finals. And then they beat Will Chamberlain in triple overtime. That's right. To win the NCAA. And they were 32-0. and 0. Coach McGuire recruited my mom. Uh, my mom felt it was important I got out of New York. Um, I wanted to go to St. John's or NYU. At that time, you know, playing in New York City in the garden was a big deal. But my mom thought it would be best if I went away. So Coach McGuire recruited her, and she said, you're going with that man, which was a blessing. He was he was incredible. And then, lo and behold, he hired Dean Smith. And uh, mm -hmm. so how many guys get a chance to play for two Hall of Fame coaches while they're going to college? And, uh, and they both became big parts of my life, um, you know, Coach McGuire was always there for me, and Coach Smith became, you know, an unbelievable mentor for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I was drafted, I think, 54 or 57 and at, by Baltimore. And at that time, if you got one meal free, you were a pro. <laughs> so I didn't choose to go to, you know, training camp. I went, Coach Smith got me a job with Goodyear in the Industrial League. Um, so I played two years there. Then he asked me to come back and be assistant coach with him at Carolina. Yes. And that was when you only had three people on the staff and freshmen were ineligible. That's right. So I was a freshman coach and assistant coach. So I learned how to coach. Um, I used to bring my practice plan to him every morning and he'd look at it and hand it back to me, never give me any advice. Mm -hmm. But my practice plan was everything he taught me. So I guess he, he allowed me to learn how to coach. I'm sure I made mistakes and stuff like that. But um, getting that chance was incredible. And then after my first year there, I was offered the Connecticut job. I was just 26. Mm. And I, w I went up to stores. Um, Fred Shabel was the coach. He became the AD at Penn. Um, mm. The new AD was the ex-football coach of Carolina. And I came back and told coach, I, I turned it down. He said, what are you talking about? That's a great job. You're so young. You, these opportunities aren't going to happen. I said, well, working with you is, is good enough for me right now. And I'm learning and I want to be prepared. Um, so then the next year, we, we recruited an amazing freshman team, by the way, that went to three straight Final Fours, mm -hmm. won the ACC Conference three straight years, the conference tournament three straight years, never been done before. And then wow. the next year, we got to recruit Charles Scott, who I didn't realize at the time that the ACC wasn't integrated. Um, yeah. Uh, there was a one scholarship kid at the University of Maryland in the ACC, but no other African-American kid um, south of the Mason-Dixon line was playing 
you know, for the Atlantic Coast Conference. And Charles came. I got to coach him as a freshman. Um, at that time, you know, Coach Smith, when, when he started coaching, uh, the scandal had broken. Um, so the University of North Carolina and at NC State were punished. So Coach Smith only had a 16-game schedule. He was limited in the number of kids that he could recruit. So when he started out, the first four years were difficult. And for him to recruit Charles based on the environment and what he was going through was um, unbelievable. Shows the character of the man. Yes. Because he, he forget, figured out Charles or anybody, they had the ability academically and athletically deserved the opportunity to play in the Atlantic Coast Conference. And Charles became, you know, the, the first guy. And uh, I had no, I didn't even know any difference. I, I'll give you a great story. I know I'm talking too much, but. No, uh, no, that's history. You're blessing me with history. <laughs> well, he sent me to um, Lebanon, Indiana one day and said, Larry, I want you to watch this kid Rick Mount play. And uh, it was a Saturday, I remember. And I went. And I don't know how many coaches were there. Um, that was when you had unlimited contacts. So you could really establish a relationship with a player. So um, I went to Lebanon and I sat with Frank DeFore, the great writer for yes. Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. And there must have been a hundred other coaches there. I think I might have been the only assistant. And uh, I sat down with Frank because he was doing a story on Rick Mount, who was going to be the first high school kid on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So I watched Rick Mount play. After it was over, we all lined up, and the kids shook hands with everybody. And I went to a pay phone, and I called Coach, and Coach said, what do you think of Rick Mount? I said, he's all right. And Coach said, all right. He's the number one high school player in the country, Larry. Didn't he show you any love? And I said, well, he wasn't exactly that warm to me, Coach. He said, well, get over it. You know, obviously he's as good a player as there is in the country. I said, well, Coach, he's all right. He's good. Um, so he said, look, come on back. I heard about a kid at Lorenberg Institute in North Carolina that might be going to Davidson. And we can allow ourselves not to be aware of every in-state kid. Right. So that Monday I went to practice. And then I got in my car and drove to Lorenberg, which was a two-hour drive. And I went in, and they I think the gym was in the cafeteria. It was a, a black prep school uh, run by a guy named Bishop McDuffie. Yeah, just an unbelievable. He was and, the headmaster and everything. And didn't Earl the Goat so, Manigault go there as well for a short time, uh, the Goat Manigault? He might have. He yeah. might He might have. But... Mm -hmm. um, I think they moved all the tables. They played on the linoleum floor. I watched Charles Scott run up and down the court five times. I ran to a payphone <laughs> and I called coach and I said, Coach, I saw a kid get who's, I don't know if he's better than Rick Mount, but he's as good as any young kid I ever saw. And coach said, Larry, get over this. I mean, this Rick Mount thing. I said, No, coach. No, you got you got to trust me. And uh, coach said, "Look, I know I know who's the headmaster, so come on back the next time they play. We'll drive down there and watch him play." And next thing you know, 
We saw Charles play. Um, Charles was everything that, you know, coach thought I, I, he was after hearing from me. Had no idea again that we weren't recruiting any, you know, African-American kids. I had, it didn't even enter my mind. But coach believed that this was the right thing to do. You know, people don't remember when they were having sit-ins in the South, Coach Smith used to go to the lunch counters and sit there and did a lot of things in the community yes. that nobody realized. That's right. That That's right. Wasn't, wasn't the thing a lot of people expected a coach to do at a major university, but he did it. And then Charles came to Carolina. And the interesting thing Charles told me, he said he found out he got more pressure from the black kids that were playing at historical black colleges than he got from playing in the ACC because he thought the ACC was all white guys. They couldn't play, but all the historical black colleges had all the good players. That's and right. they used to get on him about that. That's right. But, Earl the Pearl Monroe's one of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the amazing thing is when Charles played on 68 Olympic team with Spencer Haywood, he got a lot of pushback not to go, you know, yeah. because that that was the time when Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and That's there right. was a lot of things going on in the world that weren't really right. And mm. Charles said, Hey, no, this is an honor. I'm going to respect that. Charles right. and Spencer, you know, went to the Olympics in 68 under a lot of pressure. And coach Smith was someone that introduced you uh, when you gave your Hall of Fame speech in 2002 at the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame and, and, and what he said about you, about, you know, you're your being a teacher and being competitive. I mean, how beautiful was that to have Coach Smith introduce you on stage? Yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, when I played for Coach Smith, you know, he, he was so different than Coach McGuire. You know, Coach McGuire... He got all the kids from the same area and we used to scrimmage all day and he'd sit in the stands and that's the way he taught you. And the only way you would go from the first team to the second team, if there was a death in the family or somebody like that, he picked five guys and five played against five and that's how you learn to play. And then when he left to coach the Warriors in Philly with Will Chamberlain, coach Smith took over. Um, and they, again, Coach took over under the most difficult circumstances. But Coach Smith was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And every practice was like going to a classroom. Every drill was by the minute. Um, there was no talking. If he asked you a question and you answered, he said, I'd have asked you the question twice if I wanted your answer back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, there was no nonsense. But they both in their own way had such an unbelievable impact on my life um, mm-hmm. and so many other young people. Um, but when coach, you know, coach asked me to present him to the first hall of fame for the college hall of fame, which is in Kansas city. Mm-hmm. And, and in the class was Oscar Robinson, John Wooden, Whew. Bill, Ru- Bill Russell, Dean Smith, <laughs> And James Naismith. Wow. And that's 96, 1996. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. You got it. And I was, asked, <laughs> I was asked to introduce Coach. And then when he came and asked me 
to introduce him, you know, that was, that was beyond belief. And then fortunately for me, I've gotten to do that for a number of people. And that, yes. that, that's, that's an amazing feeling. Yes, indeed. Wow. Here on the 18th edition of Where They At with the great coach Larry Brown, uh, the only coach in NBA history to lead eight teams to the playoffs, as well as the only coach in basketball history to lead a team to an NCAA title and an NBA title. So, coach, you and Doug Moe were best of friends over in North Carolina, and then you joined them in the ABA. Now, I have kind of two questions for you about, number one, the ABA, how ahead of its time it was, because you look at how basketball is played years later, the ABA kind of spearheaded that. But also, it's interesting thing how you and coach mo different schematic philosophies coach mo was offensively you know you know all about offensive emphasis pacing but you were more about defense and and slowing down the pace so how did how did you guys be able to flourish it's like opposite of tracks i guess right <laughs> uh, i i don't really know if that's completely right i i was on a a group call a couple of nights ago with julius and Artist Gilmore and Rick Barry and Spencer Ooh. Haywood um, oh. and George Call and George Call, Bob Costas was doing it. And George Call mentioned we were playing like they're playing today in the ABA. You know, we yes. had a 30 second clock, but I never remember me playing or coaching in a game we didn't score over 100 points. Um, mm. And if you look at the rosters of those ABA teams, they had some of the greatest players of all time. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember when we merged with the NBA, uh, they didn't allow us to take part in the draft, the ABA teams. They didn't allow us to take part in the dispersal draft because they only took four out of seven teams. And two of our teams won a division championships in the NBA, both Denver, when it, where I was with Doug, mm -hmm. That's right. and Indiana with Slick Leonard. But we had these young kids that were so exciting and talented. Even Moses Malone, I can name you so many guys, Connie Hawkins, Roger Brown. We can go on and on. Yes. The talent yes. level in the ABA, Rick Barry, it, it was incredible. And the game was open. Um, because these young kids were allowed to play. They were great coaches. You know, UB Brown, Alex Sanum, Bob, Bob Leonard. We can, we can go on and on. Al Bianchi. Um, yeah, Rod Thorne, too. But, mm -hmm. Yeah, but Doug and I had similar ideas. Uh, people don't understand. He, he did believe in guarding people. But we also believed in, you know, playing with the freedom. We called it passing game. Coach Smith you know, kind of got us into that. A lot of people called it motion. He called it passing game because he's so smart. He wanted kids to think, well, if you're going to play passing game, your first idea would be to pass the ball. <laughs> so, which, which I don't think we see enough of today. Mm -hmm. but, but, but Doug and I, the only difference Doug and I had was I used to run plays into passing game. And then we... We never, I never allowed a shot that I didn't think it was a shot we could make, mm. um, which not is always the right thing. Maybe you prohibit some kids. Doug gave guys a lot more freedom in terms of shooting the ball. Well, I was told by Coach McGuire and Coach Smith, if, you, if I don't think you can shoot, 
doesn't mean I'm not going to play you. But it means if you want me to allow you to shoot, show me you can make that shot, work on that shot. Well, to me, um, I valued guys that did other things. Um, and sometimes, you know, I look back on it, I might have held some guys back. But for the most part, you know, it was about, I wrote down on the blackboard every day, play hard, play smart, play together, have fun. And then I asked Coach Smith if I could put underneath that, it'd be nice if we defended and rebound. And he allowed me to write that stuff down. And I think Doug and I, in that way, were so alike. And the other thing, um, he, we had so much respect for each other that if he believed I wasn't treating the kid right or we weren't doing the right things, he wasn't afraid to tell me that. Um, he wasn't afraid to give me input. And he allowed me to learn to coach as much as anybody. And I used to get mad at Doug. He used to make fun of the way he coached. But he cared about it as much as anybody. And it's probably one of the most underrated coaches ever. Oh, no question about it. No question about it. I mean, what he did for the, the Spurs in the late 70s when you, with Iceman and Larry Keenan, and then, of course, Denver with Alex English, Kiki Vandeway, your former player at UCLA. Uh, I mean, just yes, indeed, you're right about that. And, and Coach, now, I, I wanted to, to talk with you about, because you talk about the passing game. You were exemplary point guard, ABA All-Star for three seasons. Of course, you know, a great player in North Carolina as well. And your point guards that you've coached throughout your career, you, you're, you're tough on them. A lot of them have said that, you know, but, but how has, how has the, your philosophy be able to enhance, especially your point guards throughout your career? And you see the differences of how they became better players and better floor generals. Well, they all made me a better coach, but, uh, you know, my coaches weren't afraid to coach me. Um, and they they expected the point guard to be the guy that was an extension of the coach once you got to play and you had to be on the same page and if you weren't you know they told you about it you had certain values and those values had to be shown every time you stepped out on the court and your job as a point guard was maybe to make some sacrifices but at the end of the day, to make everybody on your team better. And by doing that, the end result is you're going to win games and the guy that is running the show is going to get a lot of the credit he deserves. But um, I had all different kinds of point guards throughout my career. I inherited – I played with Ralph Simpson. A lot of people won't remember this kid, yeah. but he yes. played at Michigan State, left early. Everybody compared him to the big O. Whom, who you and I know, my mm -hmm. Oscar might have been as good a player as we've ever seen. Yes, sir. Um, and I made I made Ralph a point guard. Um, I made guys that, Bobby Wilkerson who played for Bob Knight, mm -hmm. uh, six seven. He played with Brian Taylor and David Thompson. I made him a point guard. Uh, most people look at me with Allen. I took Allen from being a point guard to being a, a scoring guard. Right. And, right. and it took us a while to understand what I had envisioned for him. Uh, I've been blessed with all of them. You know, Chauncey, I, 
You know, I came to right. Detroit. It was the only team I ever inherited in the NBA that had a winning record. And I was lucky. You know, Rick Carlisle had a lot of the same values I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had to get Chauncey to think the way I did. And in a lot of ways, I made him sacrifice some of the great things he was able to do. And I truly believe people get mad at me for saying this, but we uh, we won an eight in two thousand four and had an had an amazing team, um, you know, with Rashid and Chauncey and Tayshawn and Rip and unbelievable Ben Wallace. But we had an even better bench with Corliss Williamson, Eldon Campbell, Mike James, Lindsey Hunter. Um, we we were so deep. Uh, none of our young players played. Um, but in 2005, I got sick. I missed 17 games. Um, we lost the home court, and then we ended up losing to S- San Antonio in the finals in game seven. Mm-hmm. But but we didn't – we uh, we lost Memo core. They added McDice, who was great. But we didn't replace Mike James. We didn't replace Carlos Williamson. We didn't replace Eldon Campbell. And I really believe if we'd have kept that group together, you know, for a long time, that team would have won multiple championships. Yes. Um, but it was because every one of those guys gave something up in their game to allow our team to be better from one to 13. And it was an incredible group to be around. Wow. Yes, sir. And, and, and almost back to back as well. We took the Spurs to game seven. And, and uh, I mean, that was one to me, one of the great finals that I've ever seen, because it was a, two of the top teams. The Spurs were the champs in 03, you were the champs in 04. And that, that was like the battle, the true battle of the Titans, that series, for sure. So. Yeah, I, I, blew, I blew that one. Um, oh. You know, we lose game five. You know, Robert Ory makes That's a right. three when we were up. And, you know, we gambled on the play, you know, because all year on Out of Bounds, I, you know, I had such a good team and so experienced. Mm-hmm. I allowed guys to do things that they felt were the right thing. And unfortunately, we went to double Ginobili and he found Ori and, you know, Ori makes all big shots. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, we lose game three. And now that was when it was 2-3-2, two, two, which is terrible format. But we go to San Antonio, win game six. And then game seven, um, we got the lead, but I got McDice and Ben and Rashid in foul trouble, you know, because we weren't a, we got near Tim Duncan, they called a foul. And so I went small for a couple of minutes. And unfortunately, during the time I went small, which we never had done, we did it the year before with Carlos. But, you know, I put Tayshawn at the power forward and the two of the big guys and San Antonio made a run and got the momentum and we ended up, you know, losing at the end. But it, you know, it was a great series. We lost to a great, a great, great team with a great coach, but it still was still a difficult game to deal with for me. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting, like 2003 draft, uh, Darko Milicic was drafted 
number two overall. Of course, that that the rest of the top five are all Hall of Fame players except for Darko. And Ben Wallace said something recently about Carmelo. Everyone's saying that the Pistons should have picked Carmelo, but Ben Wallace said that it worked out for 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 Milicic to be drafted because he knew his role. He knew that that he wasn't going to get the playing time, and that Carmelo would would have expected to play. What are your thoughts on what Ben Wallace, the right decision, I, even though you didn't get a Hall of Fame player uh, in that draft? You talk about all-time favorite players. Ben, ben is top of the list. That's right. But I, there's one, one time I don't agree with him. When I got the job, they told me they were going to draft Carmelo. There was no doubt. And they asked me what, what I thought. And anything with the ball, I watch. So I watched college games. Um, mm-hmm. My only question about Carmelo was Syracuse plays so much zone. So I said, I want to see and get to work Carmelo out to see how he can guard and move his feet because I thought that was such an important part in anybody that's going to play for me. Mm-hmm. I worked Darko out twice. So he couldn't finish a five-minute workout. Mm-hmm. But he was just an 18-year-old kid. He had all the physical tools. He had unbelievable skills. They asked me, well, who would you draft, Larry? I said, well, one, I want to work Carmelo out. But Randy Ayers, who coached with me, his sons both played with Chris Bosh, AAU ball. And and Randy said, Larry, Larry, my sons think, one, he's a great, great human being, and two, he's a great player. And the other one I said was Dwayne Wade because Tom Crane and I were close. Mm -hmm. And I went to a number of Marquette practices and I watched Dwayne. So I said, if you ask me, let's look at Carmelo, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. And what they told me, Larry, uh, Bosh and Wade won't come unless, you know, that you tell their agent, you'll draft them. Um, which, and I said, well, tell them we'll draft them if they're good enough. Um, and then I said, bring, let's bring Carmelo in. We brought Milicek in and you had told me guys, you're going to draft, you know, Carmelo anyway. And then the rumor got out that we were going to draft Darko and then Carmelo agent called and said, let's bring them both out together and have them play against each other. And we never got that far. And we drafted Darko. And I I truly believe, I know Carmelo better now. I truly believe he would have been so lucky to be on that team. Um, I believe Dwayne Wade would have been so fortunate to be on that team. Or Chris Bosh. And I believe if Darko was mature enough, he was only 18. If he was mature enough, to understand he was an inside player, not a perimeter player, uh, that his career would have been much, much greater than it would have been. But uh, it is what it is, because the same people that drafted Darko were smart enough to trade for Ben Wallace, smart enough to draft Tayshawn Prince, mm-hmm. smart enough to trade for Rip Hamilton, smart enough to trade for Chauncey Billups, smart enough to trade and believe in Rashid. So, you know, it is what it is. Wow. Hey, Coach Larry Brown here on the 18th episode of Where They At. My name is the Batals. And Coach, um, you've, you've been able to 
throughout your career? I mean, the adaptability and moving. Now, you've been criticized for moving from place to place. Do you, I personally, and let me, correct me if I'm wrong, I personally think that you were looking for a challenge to be able to, each time you go to a, a program, which is either college or pro, you were looking for that challenge to be able to turn things around and be a miracle worker, pretty much. So am I right about that? And, and is the criticism unwarranted? I don't know if the criticism's unwarranted. I, I've done that. But if you and I had a long time to talk, every move I made, there was a reason behind it. Mm. That, was, that was, I thought in my mind, a good enough reason to leave. Now, if you ask me, Larry, what, what would you wish would be different in your life? Um, they're not a lot of things. You know, again, you know, some of the players I coached, you know, maybe I wish I would have done things a little differently, but not many because I always tried my best to bring out the best. But sometimes what you think is the best and, you know, it might not be in their best interest. Mm -hmm. But every move I made, I knew I had the right reason. But if I could really say how I wish my career would be, I would have liked to have stayed at one place, got to coach all these kids, get to meet their families, and someday maybe even coach their kids. And, you know, that would have been an unbelievable thing for me. But, you know, I don't have regrets. You, you can't look back. There's no sense in trying to change things that you can't change. Change things that you can change. Make yourself better by the experiences you had. Um, but I know every place I ever coached, I did my very best. You know, not only with the players, but with the guys that sat next to me and the people I had to work for. Um, and, and that's what I'm most proud of. Because, you know, people talk about coaches having a coaching tree. I have a forest. Um, and everything that's ever happened to me that's good in my life, it's because of the people that have helped me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always tell my players that, you know, talent is a gift from God. Character is a choice, mm. you know, and the people that have sat next to me and the guys that have allowed me to coach have impacted my life in such a positive way. And, and that's, I'm a little frustrated now because I want to share what I was taught. And a lot of people look at me and say, ah, oh, you know, the game's different. It's kind of passed you by. And, you brought it up earlier, and George Carl mentioned it the other day. Uh, the way we were playing in the ABA is the way they're trying to play now. Mm -hmm. And now it's a copycat league to me. I look at every play, every team plays almost the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was young, coaches got into coaching because they loved to teach. It wasn't because of the money. Um, and now so, so many guys are getting into this profession with a whole different attitude. Um, and if you look at so many guys like, like me, we got to learn and grow as a coach. You know, I started coaching in summer camp. I started coaching a freshman team. I started as an assistant coach. I coached with the greatest coaches of all time, and I had the greatest coaches sit next to me mm. so it was a growth process my first contract I made six thousand dollars 
and coach gave me a thousand for summer camp and said he overpaid me, Coach Smith. Yeah. You know, so I mean, just to just to look back on my life and you know, the fact that I've moved and people are critical of that, I get it. But I I don't think anybody can be critical of me for trying to do the very best I could. And that's that's the most important thing to me. Wow, that's for sure. And and coach, I know you've had a lot of pushback from players throughout the years, but communication is key to great leadership. How was it for you to be able to adjust from the standpoint of that pushback and tension to still be able to communicate without having those personal and emotional thoughts to go around to still remain professional? How how were you able to do that? Well, again, we talk about it, you know, I can I really can list on one hand the guys that I don't I feel bad about my relationship with. But mm. I coach so many so many guys, but I took over every team I ever took over had a losing record but Detroit. And they sure. lost four straight in the playoffs. So that's how I ended up getting the job. And like I said before, when you follow Rick Carlisle, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of his values were, were what I was about. So that helped. But yes. when 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 all the other jobs I took over, you walk into the dressing room and there's a common denominator I see on why teams lose. Mm. Um, one, the first day you walk in, the first practice you hold, they know whether you can coach or not. That's pretty simple. And that's important to the guys. The second thing is they, after being around you a couple of days, they, they know whether you can help win or not, which is important. The third thing is they want to know if you can make them better. Because if you can make them better, you can get them on money. Because, you know, the better they get, the more people that would want them. And also, it's going to help us win. But the thing that trumps everything is if they trust you. Yes. And that's the hardest thing. And that's what you you, you got to be relentless in what you think is right in order to enable them to get better and the team to get better. But once they gain your trust, they'll do anything for you. I really, mm-hmm. truly believe that. Now. It's different now, I'm sure, because so many of these young kids, you know, have so many different outside influences. My mom didn't expect my brother and I to support her. She worked 16 hours a day to see that our lives were going to be better. I see so many of these young kids now that their families are expecting them to, you know, move on later in life and then support them that's an unbelievably difficult responsibility. And then there's a lot of people that, you know, befriend these kids and give them information that is not in, always in their best interest. And when I went to, back to college to SMU, I heard horror stories about the AEU. I didn't, I didn't buy that after being around. There were so many great AEU programs that blew me away. And there are a lot of kids that had no opportunities that were allowed to travel, get exposure, staying in hotels, you know, eat in nice restaurants because of what AAU did. Mm-hmm. But, but the sad thing is there were so many people around these kids that not all of them had their best interests. And now I'm blown away. The NBA 
is going to get tell kids not to go to college and pay them five hundred dollars, five well, for JK, thousand dollars to play in the G League, and say that when you're done playing, you can go to Arizona State and get a degree. Now you tell me, an eighteen-year-old kid, that if you give him a choice to go to class or play ball all day, what's he going to decide to do? And at least we at college is the greatest minor league program there is in the world. You have the best teachers and coaches. The kids get to learn how to be responsible. They have to go to class whether they like it or not, because if they don't, they can't play. Mm -hmm. They're held accountable. They, they have to go to study hall. They're in a diversified environment where, you know, they grew up, they never not, may never have been exposed to the kids they're going to be going to school with. And now we're telling these kids, hey, you're going to be on the same team and you're going to compete. Well, shoot, you think they're going to be interested in winning? They're going to be interested in showcasing themselves so they can be drafted. Mm. And it, it, it's questioning me. I know I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. But if you're LeBron James or Kevin Garnett or Magic or somebody like that, hey, I get it. You deserve the right to go to the NBA. But if you're not ready, what happens to you? And you decide to go to the NBA. What happens to these kids that put their name in the draft and don't get drafted and can't go back to school? No, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why can't they go back to school? I mean, right. give them that opportunity because not everybody makes the league. You're not a failure if you don't make the league. If you get, you know as well as I do, you get an education, you're exposed to great coaches, you're around great kids that have different ideas, different interests in their lives. You're going to grow up, and then everything is not going to be perfect being in college. You're going to have to deal with some issues. Maybe the coach don't play you 40 minutes. Maybe he doesn't let you take every shot. Sometimes you're going to have to fight through that. And I, I think we need that. And, I'm, you know, I'm upset. And then, you know, these kids that don't get drafted, is there a problem going back to school? Or remember Larry Bird? You know, he got drafted by the Celtics, went back to Indiana State. That's right. So so let's do this. Let's pay kids that have a chance if you want to draft them, you know, while they go to college. Put money in escrow. Keep them there. And when they're ready to come out, let them come out. The only thing the NBA loses is they don't get to use that kid the year they draft them. But they're going to get a kid that's better when he comes out, when he is ready. Kareem stayed four years. Oscar stayed four years. Michael stayed three years. I mean, I can go on and on. Larry stayed five years. Timmy Duncan. Timmy Duncan. Yeah. Four Tim, years. You know, mm -hmm. yes. I remember when people called me about Shane Battier. And I said, I'd take him in a minute. All the things that I value, you know, this kid does every minute. And they said, well, he's 22. You know, maybe he's not, he doesn't have the. <laughs> A way to grow and i'm saying to myself you got to be kidding me when we say 22 year old kids can't get better david robinson went to the academy at six five that's he right he played for pete herman who was an unbelievable coach grew to, grew to seven feet and if you talk about the great players of all time and the great human beings of all time you're going to talk about david robinson so yes indeed what's what's wrong with that but and and you know, I'm, old, 
I'm old school and, you know, I don't want to prohibit any kid because a musician can come out early, a tennis player, a golfer, you know, they can, but yeah, let a magic, let a Michael, let a LeBron. That's not, that's not a problem because they're not going to fail. But yes. a lot of these young kids that come out early, they don't earn the right to play, you know, because they're too young. And, mm -hmm. you know, they would benefit so much in my mind if we had a financial way of taking care of these kids, keeping them in college until they're ready to play. That's right, because there's the whole um, talk about NCAA, NCAA athletes being paid, getting paid, but that, that's a great idea to put money in an escrow account for, the, for it to, to, yeah, to build. I, I mean, you know, Coach Smith used to have kids when they came out early. If he thought you were ready, he wouldn't let you come back. Mm -hmm. You know, if he thought you were going to be a first-round pick and you were ready to go, he's telling you, I don't want you to come back. But he used to put it in their contract that they get a bonus if they got the college degree. So if they left early and came back to Carolina or wherever it was and got their degree, there was an incentive to go back and they get the degree as well. And you know there's life after basketball. Um, That's right. You look at Kobe, you know how tragic that was. Yes. But think of what this guy was doing with his life after playing. He, he was he was given of himself so much to women's basketball, to his daughter, to his AAU program, to all the, the films, to everything he was doing. And I think I see a lot of guys in the NBA. LeBron built the school. David built the school. David Robinson. Mm -hmm. You know, you see what Dwayne Wade and all these guys are giving back. That, to me, is what it's about. And I, yeah. I think I think the reason that they're able to do that, a lot of them have gotten surrounded by the right people and have accepted the right advice and understand how privileged they are and they want to make things better for others. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. Yes, indeed. And I've had the, I had the honor to feature David Robinson on where they at as well. He's my second guest, actually. Yes. Oh, wow. So yes, indeed. And, and everything you said about him is, is, is it magnifies for sure. Um, and Co Coach Brown, I wanted to ask you about the New York Knicks. That was the only program, you know, college or pro, that you didn't get to turn around. And it, it was very tumultuous time for you. What happened there? Well, you know, a lot of, you know, I heard Bill Parcells, you are what your record is. So I was the coach of that team. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was uh, my thing about the NBA. If you look at a team that's going to be successful, the head coach, the GM and president and the owner got to be attached to the hip. Um, you might have differences. Um and that, that's always going to happen when you have opinions from different people. But at the end of the day, there's only one voice. And the players got to know that. And then there has to be values that are put in place. Um, I, you know, I, it blows me away that they have a, an NBA staff where they have an offensive coach and a defensive coach and a head coach. I can't, can't figure that shit out. Um, because I never had a first assistant to coach coach because I wanted to recommend everybody 
And people would call me and say, what's Mo Cheek's strength? I said, what do you mean? Is he a defensive guy, an offensive guy? No, he's a coach. What is Doug Moe's strength? He's a coach. John Calipari, Bill Self. I can go on and on. They're a coach. Um, and now we have these developmental coaches, these workout coaches, these offensive gurus, defense gurus. I don't, I don't get it. It's not football. Um, so when I went to New York, Isaiah is as bright a guy as I've ever been around in my life mm-hmm. in terms of judging talent in just his knowledge of the game. Um, Jim Dolan is one of the most generous owners there ever was. But we never all collaborated together. So there was, I can never get my message across to Isaiah or Mr. Dolan. I didn't do a good job. Um, you know, Isaiah drafted some really good players. We signed Eddie, um, Eddie Curry, Eddie Curry right. who, had, who had not played in a while, you know, because mm-hmm. of heart issues. And Eddie averaged 12 and 8 a game playing 22 minutes, but got in foul trouble. You know, we Isaiah drafted Nate Robinson, Trevor Reza, who was young, David Lee, Channing Fry. Well, there were a lot of similarities with all these guys. You couldn't play them all together. If you wanted to play them all together, you were playing them all out of position. We had Stephen Marbury, who I don't think was really appreciated. Um, he wasn't a point guard in my mind, but I tried mm-hmm. to play him a point guard because that's what everybody envisioned him to be. Uh, we had Jamal Crawford, who uh, was so special in, yes. in my mind that was young. But we were a very young team, and I, I ended up playing older guys that if you're really truly going to build, you got to build with the younger guys. And when you draft a guy, it's got to be a guy that fits the coach's profile. So, you know, when these scouts go out and these GMs go out and tell a coach, this is who you're going to coach, the only ones that are successful is understand what kind of coach you are and what you value. And I don't think there was a complete connection. I didn't go to Mr. Dolan enough and share what I believe. Um, I don't think Isaiah and I were given the same message to the players, and that should have never happened. Um, and as a result, um, I didn't do the kind of job that was expected. And then the way, reason I got fired, they had a media kind of protocol. Um, when anybody asks me a question, I tell them the truth. I answer the question. I don't, I'm not smart enough to think about, you know, how this is going to affect somebody. If I, if I think it's going to be, a, if I answer it and it's going to hurt somebody, I try not to say, Hey, I, I, I don't want to comment on that. And sometimes, you know, in a place like New York, they'll assume you were thinking something else and that you might read that in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Mr. Dolan's eyes, I didn't handle the media side very well. And that really disappointed him a lot. But in terms of giving me every opportunity to be successful, he would have been there in a minute. And if I'd have been able to 
to really sit down and, and explain to Isaiah exactly what I was about. Um, I think better because the whole deal, when you hire somebody, you should hire somebody to do a specific job and allow him to do that job. And if he doesn't do it, you have every right to make a change. And I think sometimes we don't do that. Um, and I don't think sometimes, I think the franchises you see that are really great, there's a collaboration. You know, everybody is trying to do their job the best they can. Nobody gets in the middle of that circle or breaks that chain. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's what happened in New York. And a lot of that was my fault. Are you surprised that, 14 years later, there hasn't been much success. The only success was from one of your disciples, Mike Woodson. Basically, the only success they've had. Yeah, um, is that, how shocking is that, that? And this is your team you grew up watching. You were a Knicks fan. So when can they get it together? Well, I, Red Holtzman taught me on the playground. He used to come to my playground and play when he was older. I think, you know, I think they have a, a really good owner. People might disagree with me. This man will do anything to make your team better. Um, but sometimes he needs to get the right information. And sometimes there's too many people giving him information because everybody wants to feel important. But when Mike won, people forget he had Rashid, he had Jason Kidd and Kurt Thomas on the bench. That's right. And, and those guys mentored those young guys and allowed Mike to coach. The next year, Mr. Dolan thought, well, we might need to get younger. Shumpert and JR and people like that. So that was a whole different dynamic, which made it a little more difficult for Michael. So I do believe everybody wants to play in New York. I, I'm not buying this. I, I really believe there's no better place to play. Um, I do believe you know, Leon will do an unbelievable job. He's a great, great human being. Mm -hmm. I worked with Scott Perry when I was with Detroit. Him and George David were my, you know, were scouts, and they were mm -hmm. phenomenal and mm -hmm. just bright, brilliant guys. Um, I, I didn't agree with the signing. I agreed with the talent they brought in, you know, with Morris and Portis. Mm -hmm. And you know, Randall. And Randall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they, but they all were duplications. And then they bring in, they get rid of Prozingis and bring in Smith, who is not a conventional point guard, mm -hmm. but you got to play him. But you bring him in and trade and or sign a free agent point guard who's a hell of a player. So now how are you going to play all three of those guys and watch mm -hmm. them develop? And then they get rid of Moutier, um, who is just starting to grow. Yeah. So I think I think I think they did the right thing in getting assets, but maybe you don't do the right thing. And Morris, by the way, who's a hell of a player, they brought him in, who yeah. is another duplication. But ask the here's my way about the NBA. The your draft picks are valuable, mm -hmm. your contracts are valuable, and your players are valuable, and your coach is valuable. So those are your assets. You got to figure out how to use those. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, by acquiring the players they did, it might have prohibited the growth of some of the young guys, but maybe they will get assets back because they, they had a great draft. 
Barrett's going to be great. Mm -hmm. um, Knox has to grow up and get stronger, but he might be a little duplication, you mm -hmm. know, of some of the people they have. And Mitchell, Julius Mitchell Robinson, is, Robinson too. Yeah, and that was a, and you got a shot blocker who I, I don't know. I see, I see Drummond get traded, Capella get traded, blows my mind. I can't, I can't <laughs> believe you don't need a rim protector and a rebounder. <laughs> so I'm hoping that people value Robinson because you can't teach what he does. Mm -hmm. And he's only going to get better, and he's still young. Mm -hmm. So they have assets. They have draft picks coming. They have Leon, who's an unbelievable leader. Um, and I, I do believe Dolan is a great owner. Um, you know, you just got to communicate with him. You got to show him what you plan and empower him to let him know what you're trying to do. And then you got to handle the press better than I did. Because, you know, you go into the garden, um, there are all these people around you after a game. Four people are going to write something good about you, and four people are going to write something bad about what you said. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Coach McGuire told me one time, he said, Larry, you know, you're going to be a really good coach someday, but i got to tell you what to do. Don't ever read the newspapers. And I said, why, Coach? And he said, well, if they write good things about you, you're going to get a false sense of who you really are. Mm -hmm. And if they write bad things about you, it's going to hurt you and hurt your family. So remember, they write, wrap dead fish in garbage in newspapers. So he said, <laughs> he said, he said, think about that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, and coach, who, um, what are the pros and cons of today's game? in your opinion, like, especially schematically, especially uh, with, with how the game is played, what are the pros and cons for you on the court? Well, we have the best players playing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I watch, I watch some of these guys do things that I, it's, it just blows my mind. And we have some brilliant guys coaching. I think we have too many coaches, too many video guys, too many developmental coaches, uh, we're allowing young players to play before they're ready. Um, the style of play is it's a copycat league. Everybody's doing basically the same thing. Um, I, th I think uh, when you look now is the time, look at the Lakers playing Boston years ago, Detroit playing the Lakers and Boston, you know, Chicago playing now that great series we're all getting to watch. Philly with Julius. I mean, you don't see any young guy out on the court. He's not a young player. Yep. And if you're a young player in the NBA, back then, when you got to play, you earned the right to play. You were prepared to play when you got the opportunity. The game was much more physical, which I love. I mean, yep. to get a basket, you had to earn a basket. If you took a bad shot, I mean, you – you knew you took a bad shot. Somebody let you know about it. The ABA was playing like they were playing today, but we had a 30-second clock, which we scored more points with a 30-second clock. You would think we'd score less. Mm -hmm. And plus, they didn't have a reset to 14 when you get an offensive rebound or reset when you take it out on the side. So the game today, they're adding more possessions. Well, we had a 30-second clock, and teams were scoring like crazy. 
because they were taking better shots. That's right. And the guys, the guys that ha- were able to shoot the ball shot the ball. The guys that did other things were valued. You know, like you think people would value Ben Wallace today? Mm. I mean, think about that. Right. All he did was help make everybody better. When they talk about superstars, they very rarely mention an unbelievable defender mm-hmm. or a guy that, you know, was a ball mover. You know, I, I always laugh. I had a, all, most of my kids from SMU made the NBA or playing in Europe and doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, as good a player as they coached at, at SMU as a kid named Ben Moore, 6'8". He could guard everybody. He was the most intelligent kid you've ever been around. He played as hard as everybody. He's the best teammate ever. And um, he signed all these G League contracts. Three of the other kids made the NBA. The other guys were making money in Europe. And everybody, I, I mentioned, why don't you take Ben Moore? And they say, he can't shoot a three. I said, well, he doesn't want to. He wants to guard. He wants to share the ball. He wants to do exactly what's right to help your team win and make his teammates better. And they said, well, he doesn't shoot the three. You know, he's not going to be able to play. I said, well, you can't have five guys on the court that want to shoot the ball. You got to have some guys that want to move the ball, some guys that want to guard, some guys Mm -hmm. that value winning above anything else. And I think that's difficult for me right now because I see so many of these young kids that have such a bright future mm-hmm. that are not put in the right situation. And then everybody says they're a failure. No, the system failed. them. You know, because when you sit down in a dressing room with LeBron now and Dwayne Wade now and Tim Duncan or David Robinson or Magic or people like that, they're going to teach you how to play. And they're going to make you respect the game and respect the right way to play. Now these young kids, they don't have that. They're asked to play right away. Um, and look at Emmanuel. You know, he signed with me to go to SMU. Mm-hmm. Ended up, and I told his family, if he comes here, he'll be the first or second pick in the draft. He was as good as high school players I ever saw. He goes to China, plays eight games, hurts his ankle. Instead of getting drafted first or second, he went seventh. You know, he goes to Denver, gets traded from Denver, goes to New York, gets traded from New York. Now he's with Utah. Mm-hmm. And his growth since he's been in Utah was tremendous. But I think if he would have had the opportunity to, to sit and learn and not be asked right away to, to show everybody you deserve to be the seventh pick, I think his growth would have been even better. And that's, that bothers me a little bit. Um, I think these young kids, you know, going to college, you know, helping them, like you said, financially, where when they do go to the NBA, they can sign a check book. They can balance a budget. They can, you know, understand how it is to have an apartment, go out and buy groceries, go to practice every day, work on their craft, be taught by better players. And when they do get the opportunity to play, they're ready to play. And I hope we can figure that out. Wow. And who, who are the players that are playing now that you look at them and you're, and you're saying, yes, I would love to coach this kid. Wow. He, he really has, 
his head on his shoulders. Who are some of those young players that you see now in the game? Well, being at, being at SMU, you know, for six years I watched AAU kids, you know, so that we were trying to recruit. Now, right. you know, a lot of the kids we were trying to recruit, one called by Kentucky or or North Carolina. And, Duke, you know, unless, yep. <laughs> unless you have a personal relationship, it's going to be hard. But I, we were always in the top five because I had Eric Snow and George Lynch on my staff. You know, and they they were NBA players, and people could Google me up and realize I was an NBA coach at one time. But I, I'd like to coach them all. I mean, I I think there's a good in every one of these kids. Um, but I think we're afraid to teach them. You know, I'll give you an example of what I used to do. When we used to bring in a guy that we were possibly going to draft, you bring in 55 guys, right? Mm-hmm. There's only two rounds in the draft. So you're only going to be able to draft two out of the 55 you bring in. Mm-hmm. But I ran every one of those practices that we brought them in. You could bring in six at a time. And my goal was to show my care. I wanted to share all the knowledge that I had that I was taught. And then I wanted us to make good impressions. So someday, if we weren't fortunate enough to draft them, that they would say, hey, when I went to Philly or when I went to Detroit, that staff really cared about me. So when I'm talking about free agency or a trade, you know, I want to go there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that was the goal of mine. And then with, with the number of games you played, um, you had to be sensitive about practice. And I'm, I'm nuts about that. I'm relentless. Um, and because I think that is when you give the kid an opportunity to get better. And I learned that a lot of the guys that are playing a lot of minutes, you got to be sensitive to those. But the ones that aren't playing a lot of minutes, which usually were young guys when I was coaching, you have to run a practice for them, just like a college practice every day. Because when they do get a chance to play, you want to make sure they can show you and show everybody what they're capable of doing. Because if they if they don't have a practice, if they just work one-on-one with an individual coach, they're not being taught. You know, every drill to me should be a basketball-specific drill that applies to the way you want to play that you can best Mm. utilize the gift that you have. So I used to have guys bang on my door saying, coach, can you get a gym for us? If we were in another town or after practice coach, let's stay after and have a real practice. And that was the greatest thing for me. Now I coached Alan. He didn't like it. You know, he didn't (laughs) like practice. So when he didn't (laughs) practice, you know, sometimes I could stay sane. But the difference with Allen is I had a bunch of guys on the team that understood when it was time to play, nobody played any harder or tried any harder to win a game. So, you know, they could deal with me being a little different with Allen. And then, you know, in a lot of ways, I didn't coach Allen the right way. It took me a while, you know, to understand him and appreciate him and get him that we were on the same age and so much alike in so many ways. And that that's one of the greatest gifts I've ever had is coaching Allen Iverson and being around him. Now, mm. if you would ask me when I was first coaching him, 
I don't know if I could have said it quite that <laughs> way. But the admiration we all had for his toughness and his will to win and his love of his teammates was off the chart. But the frustration I had is that I think if he would have listened to some of the things we were trying to say about how you handle your career, it could have been longer and the influence on other young kids could have been more impactful because I know how popular Michael is. I know how popular Kobe is because when Kobe died, we all realized all the young kids, that was his guy. You know, all the young kids, that was the guy. When Michael was around, it was Michael. Now Spenny, LeBron, and Damon. Then Kareem played. and You know, not so much Kareem because it's seven foot, so everybody couldn't identify with him. Right. But when Allen played, because he was so small and the mm -hmm. way he played, everybody admired Allen and wanted to be like him. And I used to say all the time, Allen, the impact and effect you can have on all these people is so great and since then he understands that um you know i brought him to smu had him speak to my team you've never seen uh, an experience like my kids had listening to alan talk to them about all the good he did the things he would have changed and just how open he was and then if you read his comment when kobe died you know he said you know yes Kobe lasted 20 years, I lasted 12. And he said, when Kobe was getting up at 6 a.m. to work out, I was coming in, you know, from mm -hmm. maybe being in a club. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's not an easy thing to say, but, but, but the truth is, he's the greatest athlete I've ever seen and as great a competitor uh, as I've ever been around. And, I wish I would have done a better job with him. I, I, I think there was more I could have done. Wow. Well, here with Coach Larry Brown, 18th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate. I was Coach Brown. You mentioned there were a few other players that you wish things could have been different. Name those other guys that, that you think about. Oh, I, I have a hard time doing that. I'll give you one, Stephen Jackson. Ah, um, uh, yes. You know, I had him in Detroit. I mean, in uh, Charlotte. Um, one of the greatest competitors I've ever been, yes. been with. He had an unbelievable year with us. Got us to the playoffs. Averaged over 20. He would guard anybody. That's right. You know, he had this, you know, you tell him, hey, you guard uh, Michael or Whoever's the best player, you put mm -hmm. me on LeBron, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he, he did so it to Nowitzki while at Golden State. He did it to Nowitzki when they upset the yeah, he, Mavericks that year. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, think about that. But I can never get Steven to understand, you know, what I was all about. And uh, I remember he ended up having a great year. And I told Michael, I, you know, Michael, I don't know if I can coach Steve. And uh, Michael and Rod Higgins' idea to me was, hey, he had the greatest year he ever had with you, Larry. I said, yeah, but I just think he's so strong-willed and so am I. I don't know if we're a good combination together. Mm -hmm. But I do admire so many things that he does that he has inside him that I don't think I ever did a good job of making him understand that. And as a result, 
I lost my job. They got rid of Raymond Felton for nothing. They got mm. rid of Theo Ratliff. They got rid of Larry Hughes. They got rid of Boris Diaw eventually. They got rid of Tyson Chandler. Um, and we had Kwame Brown, who was really getting good, but he sprained his ankle just before the season started. Mm-hmm. And I only lasted 16 games. And then before you knew it, they traded Steven right after that. But he had so much to give that I think there was a better way of me bringing it out. And wow. that I kind of regret that. Wow, and 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 you still led Charlotte to the playoffs. You know, once again, being able to to turn programs around, basically, you know, for sure. Um, and coach, uh, I have just a couple more questions, and I thank you for your time. It's such an honor to to speak with you, and 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 an honor to hear your reflections. And and uh, but I want to ask you a serious question about what COVID nineteen has done to all the professional sports, and of course, the NBA was the first league to shut the first North American league to shut down operations after what happened with Rudy Gobert diagnosed with COVID-19. Should the league just scrap the season and just wait till next fall? Um, You know, I got mixed emotions about that. I I got um, sports is such a big part of our lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing. I'm, I'm locked in on this TV. I, I can't wait till tomorrow night to see, episodes three and four of the last dance (laughs) yeah and i'm you know i'm watching so many great movies now that um i'm watching old games old you know old games that i coach that sometimes i get excited about it and sometimes i think what a dumbass how can you be considered a coach but um (laughs) but most of the most of the successful i'm sure like game five of 2014 uh, excuse me 2004 (laughs) finals or 95 eastern conference semis you know with with your pacers beating the knicks i'm sure i can list on and on but anyway (laughs) i worry about starting because i worry about the health of people um you know until we really test people i know we're talking about testing five a million. Well, we have 328 million people. Um, yep. I see, you know, people in uh, nursing homes. I see, you know, people that are disadvantaged and don't have the resources passing away. Mm. I'm, I'm worried about all that. You know, I'm worried about getting around my grandkids. My family's worried about me because I'm 79 and, you know, they want me to wear a mask and stuff like that. I admire what so Adam Silver did. As soon as Rudy got the virus, he shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe we can play football with stadiums that aren't filled. Um, maybe we could probably play basketball games. But basketball is different. You know, um, you're in such close contact with these guys. To isolate these guys for months, you know, to me is is horrible. You know, I. But we got to watch sports. It's so much yeah. a part of our lives. And mental health is so important. There's so many other factors that are troubling me because of this virus. You know, um, you know, like I said, I'm around my grandkids. So I walk and I see them from a distance. And it's, it's an unbelievable experience. But I got two of my kids and family. And you know, my wife in the Hamptons and I'm not allowed to go there because it spikes so much in New York and Long Island. So, 
the safety of people to me is paramount. And when what they figure out, you know, everybody's safe enough to get back to normal, which I don't know if it'll ever be the same, you know, we got to figure out something and somehow to do these things and maybe putting it off is the best thing. And, and then, you know, we can take a lot of good out of this. You know, if, if you, if you can't, you know, understand how you act affects other people, um, there's something wrong. And to have families and people making sacrifices for one another is only going to make our country stronger. You know, and when I when I see when I have to go to a doctor now or when I see what nurses are going through and putting their lives on the line and these National Guard and soldiers and healthcare workers and people that are driving trucks and delivering food. I mean, gosh, the sacrifices they're making. Yes. We got to figure out how to help them and appreciate that. Yes, sir. No question about that. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny, um, you know, just about with this situation going on and they're talking about putting teams in a bubble, like, you know, in a couple of cities and everything like that. But I don't know. It's still, you just don't know with how this disease moves, you know? No, I, I worry, you know, I, I know people, you know, Latinos in the African community and you know a lot of people are dying because of diabetes and other issues and there's so much we're learning all the time about this that it, to me until we figure out a way to keep people safe um, we gotta we gotta be real careful um, we gotta listen to the people that know best about public health and how to open our economy and how to take care of people that a less advantage, you know, and that's the neat thing when you see the NFL draft and they have a telethon raising money and you see what so many of these yes. NBA players and baseball and football players giving masks and giving food and doing things like that. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel pretty special that I know at one time I was part of that. See the sacrifices that people are making to make other people's lives better. It, it might be something that we all can learn from and help us all because uh-huh. there's, you know, the way these politicians are, there's such a divide oh, in our yeah. country now that, you know, I would hope that this thing would, you know, have a positive effect on bringing people together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and sir, I want to ask you one more question. University of North Carolina, you're starting five all-time University of North Carolina, and you can include yourself. All-time North Carolina team. Oh, my God. Five. Coach Smith. Coach Smith would never allow me to do that. And everybody <laughs> always asks me who is the best player I ever coached or the best player I ever saw, this and that. And I, I can never say that. And he would be mad if anybody ever put him on – on that. I'll tell you who is pretty good is Michael Jordan was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> but there, there, there was so many, so many great ones. You know, when Coach McGuire coached, Bluth and Tommy Kearns, Pete Brennan, Doug O, York Larisi, when Coach Smith coached, it went on and on and on. And his appreciation for players was similar to mine, 
You know, mm-hmm. Sam Perkins, he could look at. You look yep. at James Worthy. Everybody, we talk about Phil Ford, what Charles Scott had to go through. But mm-hmm. I, I could write a list of so many guys that, you know, did incredible things. Antoine, Vince, that uh, it, it goes on and on. But I'm, I'm proud to be part of that family. Yes. You know, that's, that's, uh, and my old, oldest granddaughter just got accepted to Carolina. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> which, uh, Mason, which is, is pretty neat. It's not an easy place to get into now. Especially, that's right. Especially a female. There's so many, you know, places like Virginia, BC, Georgia, Wake Forest, a lot of schools that at one time we didn't really know about. Now everybody wants to go to those schools. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm proud of her. But you asked me a great question, but I know Coach Smith would, would have said basically the same thing. Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to allow Larry to answer that question. <laughs> and it, it's so interesting. What, and, and, and Michael Jordan, you mentioned Michael oh, Jordan. Rashid, no, I gotta oh, she, Rashid. yeah, Stack, Stackhouse too. <laughs> Him and Stackhouse are together, yeah. <laughs> Walter Davis, North Carolina guy. People oh, yeah. don't talk yeah. about it. To me, because we were talking about before we got on air, 70, late 70s, early 80s NBA for me was great. And seeing Walter Davis play. But people don't talk about how Mike's game kind of mirrors Walter Davis. A very, the, the, everything, the movements, the mannerisms. Yeah, you, you said that. And I think of McAdoo and Bobby Jones. I can go on and on. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, there was, there was a rumor out there that the only guy that could hold Walter Davis to 13 points a game was Dean Smith. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, but that was our DNA is that, you know, everybody did things for the sake of the team's success. Mm-hmm, what right. Michael averaged 15 his first year yeah like you know? 12 12 his first year and then 20 his junior year yeah 20 his yeah junior. and then and then he you know with James Worthy uh you know Vince didn't break out till a little later I mean Rashid uh, there were there were so many that we could mention when you Billy Cunningham who I got to play with that mm-hmm. was so so special um Larry Miller people won't even know but Larry Miller when he decided to go to North Carolina mm-hmm. um, it changed Coach Smith's whole program because he beat Kentucky Duke all the other schools and that kind of validated the people saying hey you know Carolina's back Coach Smith is the guy that's going to make me better and from then on you know everything's history yes. you know that's that's when it it truly changed and but you you look at the rafters coach got my name put on the rafters because i was the first olympian you know he made a special reason to put my name up my number up there i you know when i look at the people's numbers that are up there i laugh when i i look at mine but he was kind enough to that there Coach Brown, so, no, 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 that, no, you're not, you're part, you enhance that, those, that Raptors for sure, with your addition yeah, there. <laughs> but, um, well, thank you. wow. So, and I know you're a jazz fan. What are you listening to now? You know, to keep your mind off everything and stuff. I know you love the music. You talk to me about jazz. My brother's a jazz fan. I'm oh, okay. I, I grew up going to Broadway shows. I remember yes. my mom when she, 
when she would save enough money, she would take me to a Broadway show, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's My Fair Lady or West Side Story. Wow, those or Lay Mid, and you know any of the great shows. Yes. As an early, early young boy, that was besides going to the garden and sitting way up high for sixty cents. <laughs> um, I, I would go to a Broadway show. So I've always appreciated, you know, that kind of talent. Um, you know, because these people they're doing it live. That's right. You know, right in front of you now. I did enjoy jazz when I played for the New Orleans Buccaneers in the ABA. Oh. Going down Bur going down Bourbon Street with Doug Moe and and there were so many unbelievable places that you could hear jazz. I remember there was a place called Cole's Corner and this guy Ronnie Cole, you know, had a duet and he used to play the piano and you know, wow. somebody'd ask them to play a song and you knew the lyrics and the song and all of a sudden he's playing it entirely different mm -hmm. um, so I, I but i've always had a you know great appreciation for people's talent and music wow absolutely and, and coach brown all of us have a great appreciation of what you brought to the game of basketball and to the game of life as well with your leadership and i thank you so much for the honor to interview you on on where they at and i thank you sir for your time well, you stay well, stay healthy, and I hope I didn't say things were too controversial. Um, I, I said it from my heart and things I truly believe. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I grew up and I'm do I did I was able to do exactly what I thought I was put here to do, and I don't think many people, you know, have that chance. And I'm I'm pretty lucky and. I hope I shared some things with you that make some sense. Oh, yes, sir, you did. Yes, sir. And thank you so much. Many blessings to you and your family. And, and we will be talking soon. Absolutely. All right. Stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the 18th edition of Where They At. Wow, what an honor and a privilege to talk to the great Larry Brown, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, the only coach to lead eight teams to the NBA playoffs, the only coach to win an NCAA title and an NBA title. What, wow, the insight and the knowledge, the memories that he shared. And if you like the music, feel free to go to N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S. That's nabateisles.com to uh, check out the music from my album, Eclectic Excursions, which uh, is also available on Amazon, Spotify, Tidal, Apple Music, Google Play, et cetera, et cetera. And to listen to other episodes of Where They At, where I've just had the pleasure of interviewing luminaries like Larry Brown, you could go to check out Where They At on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, also Google Play, also Stitcher as well. It's available. So make sure when you hear uh, the podcast, make sure you subscribe and or follow and rate as well, uh, too. That will really be a help to me uh, to be able to get the podcast more out there for sure. And I thank you for listening. And remember to be safe, be healthy, stay home, and wishing you and your family much health Many blessings for sure. Thank you all. I'm Nabate Owls. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everybody.